Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. As an American, Bill Porter discovers his spiritual haven in the realm of Chinese literature, especially poetry. Having translated over 2,000 Chinese poems, he is the first American to publish an English version of a revered Chinese poetry anthology in the United States in the year 2003. Approaching his 80th year in 2023, Bill's enduring connection with China persists as he plans further journeys to explore the footsteps of his beloved poets. Today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio here in Beijing by Bill Porter, an esteemed American writer, translator and sinologist. Bill, welcome to the studio and good to see you in person. Oh, it is. Nice to see you again, Lucien, in person. So I understand you're here to receive a book award. It's called the Special Book Award of China. And you're also here for a new book launch. Tell us a bit about this, the book award first. Well, the book award, I think, was for Finding Them Gone, Xinren uh, Bui. As I got to know Chinese poets, uh, I felt this deep connection to them, and, and I wanted to thank them. Um, and so I made up this trip to visit the graves and the homes of 40 of China's greatest poets and uh, wrote this book called Finding Them Gone, Visiting Their Homes and Graves. And then I'd, I would read them their poetry at their grave and pour some whiskey in little cups and whatever whiskey they didn't drink, I did. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a fascinating story. For the people who do not know you, um, I understand you started the journey of uh, doing what you're doing in, um, I don't know how many decades ago, six? Oh, five. I guess it was 1970 when I made the mistake. Uh, I guess it wasn't a mistake, but I, I wanted to go to Columbia University and study anthropology with Margaret Mead. Uh, and I applied, and there was, I had no money, and I needed a fellowship. So I saw this language fellowship, and it had to be a rare language for an American in 1970. And I just read a book called The Way of Zen by Alan Watson. It had these Chinese characters in it. And I wondered, how is it possible anyone can understand that kind of writing? <laughs> and so on a whim, I wrote in the word Chinese. They gave me a four-year fellowship, and here I am today. Um, of course, I gave up the anthropology uh, uh, quest when I, I met a monk who taught me how to meditate and decided it was much be much more interesting way to spend this life uh, cultivating a spiritual practice than uh, being an academic. You know, what you did... For instance, what you described just now, going to the graves uh, or the grave sites of uh, ancient Chinese poets and paying tribute to them, read a poem in front. Not even the Chinese do that. You know, I, I, you're the first person who did that in a systematic manner, whether Chinese or foreigner. Why did you come up with that idea and uh, what's the meaning of it? Well, the meaning is uh, I'm a foreigner. and. I, I, China is such a, a, a great repository of, of riches for a foreigner. You know, we never really know what's around our house. <laughs> you know, when, when visitors come, you know, you really don't know what they, they want to see something. And um, so you take them to something they want to see that you've never seen yourself. So uh, when I came to, to China, people had sort of uh, uh, lost interest in a lot of aspects of their own culture. Um, but for me, this was a wonderful thing to do, to visit uh, 
the graves and the homes of these old poets. And, and of course, having the internet was having Baidu. Uh, and maybe if I would have done this 20 or 30 years ago, I, I wouldn't have been able to get a lot of the information that I was able to get online. And uh, anyway, I had a great, I love to take trips. And I, I love to take a, a trip with a theme. And I learned that when I was working for a radio station in Hong Kong. I had to take, uh, give them two minutes a day. And so I would take these trips, come back to Hong Kong, and uh, give them, like I, I took a, a trip up the Yellow River from the mouth to the source, gave them 240 two-minute minute programs, and it was a big success. Um, and so they said, keep traveling. So mm -hmm. I went to Siyan to Islamabad, 280 programs. And so I learned how to travel, uh, look at a map, and see a theme in the map. I see. And then take that, take a trip. Yeah. Well, um, I just felt that the fact that you, as someone who comes from another land, would come and and pay tribute, and when you raise the the glass of whiskey or liquor or whatever, to pay tribute to an ancient Chinese poet, that is very touching to me. It and was for me too. Yeah, and sometimes you would you would take great pains to get to that site, and sometimes, exactly as the title suggests, finding them gone, they're not there. How does it feel to be on such a journey, to be in that experience? Well, the, uh, I chose that title because every Chinese poet of any significance in, since the Tang Dynasty has written a poem where they, they go to visit a friend, and they're not there. And they're not there. And they still write a poem. It's true. And it's always titled Xinren Buyu. Xinren Buyu. Looking for them, not seeing, not meeting them. Is that unique to the Chinese poem, poetry? Yeah. Or do you, do you think it is a universal theme that people w like to lament on a slight, you know, contradiction between their expectations and the reality? I think it's a Chinese thing. You think it is a Chinese but thing? Then, Why is that? Um, these educated people who basically ran the country for the last 2,000 years, they were skilled in poetry. In fact, during the Sui and Tang dynasties, you couldn't be an official unless you passed an exam, a poetry exam. So, so all officials were poets. So they, you might say they all belonged to this club. And so the language they shared was a language of poetry between them. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, they wrote poems for all kinds of occasions, especially parting. But there was that also that occasion when they go to visit somebody and they're not there. What is the bearing of that on China as a society, as a, as a civilization? Do you ever think about this? How has that shaped the Chinese character or personality, if you will? Well, for one thing, they're, they're not going to let the disappointment become a disappointment they turn their disappointment into a success. They write a poem. That's the way to live with the imperfections. Yes, uh, because when you write a poem, you write it from your heart, but when you write it, you, it comes out of your heart. Let it go, like a, a bird flying. Is that why you love reading Chinese poems and translating Chinese poems into English? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, journey every time I read a poet and, and the poems. Of course, I'm a foreigner and I wasn't raised in, with the Chinese language. And so every under, coming to understand the poem in the first place is, is really hard. But then trying to bring it into my language, 
becoming basically what I, I like to tell people, becoming the dance partner of the poets I, I translate. That's what I love to do. I love the experience of dancing with somebody who can dance, really dance. I can't write poet. I never write poetry, so I can't dance. But I can. I've gotten really good at accompanying people who can dance following, in Chinese, following their steps, following their their heart, their rhythms, um, whatever I get out of their 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 dance. Yeah. Well, show us an example. So your book, The Poems of Masters, has been launched in China. Yeah, this is a, a, the Chinese uh, edition of Poems of the Masters. Um, now in a new Chinese edition with a, a wonderful, uh, what they call a naked spine that lays flat. Wonderful. So, yeah. I wish more publishers. Naked spine, it means when you, when you lay down the book, it, it lays flat. I wish more publishers would do that. But, uh, yeah. Okay, so this is actually what I mean by uh, the revered Chinese poetry anthology. This uh, has been used, it was, it was the, uh, published in the Song Dynasty uh, in the 13th century, early 13th century, and immediately became part of every school child's education until in the middle of the 1950s, it was still being used in the third grade and the fourth grade. And so even when the children didn't necessarily understand the poems at first, they memorized them and memorized them, learning the rhythms and the language of, of Chinese poetry. It's, it's why people today can see these poems and they know them, they've heard them. Yeah. Poems of the Masters, this is the title of this book. And in Chinese, Hua Ying Ming Yue, Song Jiang Lai. Which one shall we start with? I, I like the first poem a lot. It's my one of my favorite poems. Okay. By Meng Haoran, called Chen Xiao, Spring Dawn. Okay. Do you want to read it to us? Okay, I'll read the English. All right. Sleeping in spring, oblivious of dawn, in every direction I only hear birds. After the wind and rain last night, I wonder. How many petals fell? Indeed, this is one of the most recognized poems, most well-known poems in China. What do you like about this one? It's, it's so beautiful and it's so tragic. Why do you say that? Well, it's, it's spring dawn. Winter's over, it's spring. Meng Haoran wakes up, birds, all he hears are birds. There was a windstorm last night, and he wonders how many petals are there out there. And the, the, what makes it such a tragic poem is what is he doing in bed? <laughs> Why isn't he outside? Yeah. He wrote this poem after he had came back from Chang'an, where he tried to be, get a job as an official, and he came back and was living as a, in a hermitage on a mountain called Lushan, outside of Xiangyang. And there he is. One of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in spring is when you go to a, a grove of fruit trees and the land is carpeted with pink and white petals. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful scene that must be. And all he can do is wonder how it looks, instead of getting out of bed and going to see it. What does that say about Meng Haoran, about, or about Chinese 
poetry that it's very elusive. It's very implicit. It doesn't express some meaning outright. Okay, right. It's all implied. And again, it sounds like a gorgeous, beautiful poem. Right. It, everything about it is beautiful. Birds, it, yeah. Except when Petal you think about flowers. it. So part of the great art of, of Chinese poetry are, are, are the poets who can who can write something that's that's like this. It's seemingly so beautiful, and yet their heart is breaking at the same time. Is that what captures you as well? Oh God, yes, of course, yes. When I read a, read a poem like this, I, um, anyways, that's what how I fell in love with Xin Shi Ji too. Just one time, you you read a poem by a poet and. Uh, I have to meet this person. I want to dance with that mm. that man. Well, Xin Shi Ji is a very famous poet as well of twelfth uh, uh, to thirteenth century, and um, he had a great disappointment. Let's say he wanted to realize uh, his dream of uh, reclaiming the northern territory, but he was not successful. He was literally fighting against the tide of history, and he had to live with that reality. Tell us how you discovered Xing Qi Ji and what's the relevance of Xing Qi Ji to you? I discovered him accidentally when I was doing this pilgrimage to the graves of, and the homes of the great poets. And uh, my second stop was the home of, of, of Li Qing Zhao, the great female woman poet of the Song Dynasty. And I just happened to find out uh, a few days before I went on my trip that Jinan has another poet, Xin Qi Ji who was also one of the great poets of the Song Dynasty, and I'd never heard of him. And there's a good reason there's nothing of his in English. And part of the reason is he wrote, instead of writing the standard poem, the shir, he wrote se, or lyrics. He wrote poems to songs. And the thing about that, for, for me as a translator, the songs are gone. We don't know the music. Mm. It's as if you took a, a song like Blowing in the Wind, and then wrote different lyrics to it. So anyway, uh, when I went to visit his home, they gave me a little brochure. On the brochure was one of, was this little Sinchiji poem. When I was young, I loved to climb towers. I loved to climb towers, and in my poems, I forced myself to speak of sadness. And knowing now the taste of sadness too well, I start to speak of it, but stop. I start to speak of it, but stop and say instead, what a chilly autumn day. When I read that, I said, I gotta meet this guy. Um, anyway, I fell in love with Xin Shi Ji, and I had to wait about 10 years now to begin a, a trip around China, visiting places where he wrote his poems, one of them being, I understand, your hometown of Zhenjiang. Yes, and, and the, the background behind us is exactly my hometown, which is at the intersection of the Yangtze River and the Grand Canal. So uh, Zhenjiang in history is a very important strategic stronghold. That's where uh, many important battles were taking place when the troops or the nomads from the north would be would try to invade and conquer the rest of China and the Han people would try to hold out there and this battle would be taking place. But uh, yeah, there is a very famous um, zi that was written um, in Zhenjiang of exactly that period of history that I was talking about and written by Xing Qiji. It's so famous, if you ask 
the Chinese is again one of the most known zi in China. Shall we try to um, read it out? Okay, yes, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. 南湘子登金口北固亭有怀何处望神州满眼风光北固楼。Where can I gaze on our sacred lands? At Beigu Tower, the wind filled my eyes. 千古兴亡多少事,悠悠,不尽长江滚滚流。so many events have come and gone with the ages. On and on, the relentless Yangtze has rolled on. 年少万都谋,坐断东南战未休. Leading 10,000 men when he was young, guarding the southeast, fighting without rest. 天下英雄谁敌手,曹刘,生子当如孙仲谋. Which of the world's heroes was his equal, Cao Cao or Liu Bei? A son like Sun Zhong was my hope. How do you like it? What, what do you like about this poem? He wrote this poem three years before he died. The first poem he ever wrote was in Zhenjiang when he was 24. And here he has come back. And uh, of course, he came as a general and trying to reclaim the lands of the north. And this Three years before he's going to die, he, of course, he didn't know he's going to die in three years, but he was getting old, frail, and he stands on this tower and he looks back to where he wrote his first poem and realizes that he had the ambition to be like Cao Cao or Liu Bei. One of the great strategists of the Three Kingdoms period. Yeah, that's almost uh, 900 years earlier. But uh, he couldn't be like, like either of them or Sun Zheng, Zheng Mo either, uh, Sun Quan, the great, the great uh, leader of the, this part of China, the southeast section, the kingdom of Wu. There's a lot of context to be understood for people to understand exactly what the story is about. But how about the style? You know, um, what I like about it is the, the grand, you know, in Chinese we call it hao fang. It's almost like, I don't care, I just want to stand on the top of a mountain and yell out you know, uh, where can I gaze on our sacred land? You know, it's like on and on, the relentless Yanzi, you know, this, this, this style of a general, fearless, determined, and not being shy or, or elusive here. Well, these, none of these poems were meant to be simply read. They were written to songs. So when you're singing, you're singing out loud. And the style is meant to be out loud. So what is the relevance of all of this that you're trying to do for the readers? Why do you think people need to go back and reconnect with the poets, with, you know, with their gravesites, or, or with the Qian Jia Shi once again? Why do you want to bring, bring back to people? Well, all of these people have such beautiful voices, and, and it's not the sound of their voice, but the depth that is in the voice, like the, the first definition of, of Chinese poetry was zai xin wei zhi, fa yan wei shi. That is, poetry is words from the heart. When words come from the heart, that's a poem. That's at least the, the ideal, what poets live to do. And so these poets are expressing the depth of human experience 
um, in a way that us normal people can't. They're like lights to us, guides to us. And Do you think what they have in their heart hundreds, even thousands of years ago can still be helpful for us today? Our, hearts, our, our hearts haven't changed. <laughs> we still have the same hearts. We still feel the same way they felt. But our environment has changed tremendously. Do you think what they have expressed as feelings, as sentiments, can still help us deal with the imperfect realities of today? Well, uh, it certainly can. And we have poets in both of our countries that, that write poems like this about elevators getting stuck or buses breaking down or, or you know, just life in the 21st century. Um, using the same image, same images that, that we all see every day, but using them in a way that these poets also use them. The words that you have to use somehow are once everybody understands right now, but um, they use them to bring out their hearts, to make, show, here's, here's my heart. Mm. It's the same as your heart. Is the Chinese heart understood by an American or international reader? No, I mean, not yet? No, no, not yet. I mean, there's too, too few people listen. But sure, there are people who love Chinese poetry, but they are few. And then, of course, we're just now becoming better at translating poetry. Uh, if you read po translations from 50 years ago, they're sort of dead, so it wouldn't. Uh, one thing, of course, that we're countries are doing more and more are cultural exchanges where where you bring people together and, and encourage people from other cultures to, to get to know your culture more so they can take it back back to their own culture and and, and show how 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 similar we are at the roots of our culture because all culture comes from our heart mm. and from your understanding how similar we are Yes. We are very similar. Yeah, four C's are one, <laughs> are one family. Um, you were in the United States, you're surrounded by information that's found on the U.S. media or however you find your information. How different from what you understand as the Chineseness to what you hear and see that's being said about Chinese culture or Chinese? Is that very different from your understanding of the country, the, the people, the culture, to what you're being told in the United States at this well, moment? Well, I'd say 90% of what is said about China regards politics um, or economics. As far as the culture, cultural aspects, there's some of that too. And of course, people come to China and travel um, as tourists uh, to get to know it, but uh, and of course there are, there's concerts in in the United States and dance performances. There are a lot of aspects of Chinese culture that that finds a way into foreign countries and in, in, into um, including America. There, there also they have a Middle Kingdom attitude. You know, do we really need to know that? <laughs> We are uh, the center of the world. Yeah, yeah. There's that. There's that, that attitude, and why can't everybody just learn English? And and um, anyway, uh, but there's always people wanting to learn more and becoming impressed with other cultures. And um, I'm 
met and, and I get letters and, and emails from strangers all the time who turns out to, they, and they turn out to be very young people uh, who are really interested in, in Chinese culture, Chinese uh, religion, poetry, things like that. Mm. So there's, the young people are always our hope. And they so that and gives they, you hope. And they still are. I wouldn't count on the old people in America. Um, although they, they, can, they can be fans of China too if they've taken a trip to China and seen for themselves. Finally, um, how, would you, how would you describe the country, the civilization, from what you've seen, what you've um, lived through all of these years to, to an audience abroad who hasn't been to China? What would you tell them uh, of uh, what kind of culture this is? It's a, it's a many-faceted culture. It's like a jewel with, with, with many facets. And often these things get, get uh, simplified into one or two facets when, when, when uh, um, politics or economics are, are involved. For, even for language, for example, there are so many dialects in China. Even the Chinese sometimes can't understand one another because uh, of the variation. So China is a, is a, a land of great variation. If you don't go go to that area, you'll never know, say, about about the, the, those 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 cultural treasures that they have there. Mm -hmm. In terms of continuity, because all of the sites of these, for instance, uh, dead poets, uh, you are still able to find traces of of uh, of their existence, of their presence. You know, and China is the only continuous civilization which has not been broken. So. Is that a big part in your experience? If, if China had didn't have the respect for the, the depth of its roots, um, I couldn't do the work I do. Because I can't understand poems that somebody doesn't help me understand. And so Chinese write commentaries to different poets. And I go to these places where poems were written. And local scholars will, will help me understand them. The, there's no culture in the world that has maintained a respect for its past. Obviously during the Cultural Revolution there was a little speed bump there, but still the, the Chinese have, have great reverence for their ancestors and for the, those roots that, uh, that have given birth to them and, and what they treasure most. The poetry especially, but calligraphy, language, um, architecture. It's a, it's a very, very rich culture and it's still alive. Thank you. Um, my guest has been Bill Porter, an esteemed American writer, translator, and sinologist. Thank you, Lucin. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing.